Please take your Bibles once again and turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at this passage again that describes the first woman and the first marriage. And we're not going to be giving the same attention to every chapter in the book of Genesis as we go through it, but uh, it's been a long time since we've had sermons that specifically address marriage and the home, and uh, we've had series of them in the past, but I've decided to stop and emphasize a little bit more some of the things that are here in this chapter. Please follow along as I read, beginning with verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Before we look at these words again, let us pray for the help of God. Most gracious and glorious God, we do thank you that in a world in which marriage is being more and more denigrated, and in many cases, in thousands of cases, it is something which is a bitter experience for those that enter into it. We do thank you, Lord, that even though we make a mess out of everything in the world, you have given unto us a perfect guidebook to help us, Lord, in that path in which you would have us to walk. And we pray that whether we have made mistakes in the past and sins in the past or whether we are enjoying your blessing right now, we do pray that whatever state we are in, that you would be pleased to take your word and write it upon our hearts and enable us to glorify you more as we consider what you would say to us through your word. May it be that we have happy homes, godly homes. May it be that we have happy and godly friendships and relationships beyond even our homes. We pray, Lord, that every one of us would benefit from that which we study this morning. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Four-year-old Susie had just been told the story of Snow White for the first time in her life. And she could hardly wait to get home from nursery school to tell her mommy that story. And with wide-eyed excitement, she retold the fairy tale to her mother that very afternoon. And after relating how Prince Charming arrived on his beautiful white horse and kissed Snow White back to life, Susie loudly asked, And do you know what happened then? Yes, said her mom. They lived happily ever after. No, 
Susan responded with a frown. They got married. Well, in childlike innocence, that little nursery schooler, she spoke the in-depth truth without realizing what she was saying. Getting married and living happily ever after are not necessarily synonymous things. Well, all one has to do is go online and look up divorce rates in our country to see that getting married and living happily ever after is far from a universal experience. The average length of a marriage in America is 8.2 years. And the rate at which marriage ends up in divorce, and it goes up and down these rates too, but it varies between 40 and 50% of marriages. And when we take into account the fact that the rate at which people are getting married now has declined by 30%, they're just living together, they don't get married. The fact that almost one in two marriages end up in divorce, this is something that is very troubling. And of course, as we look at these statistics and we say something about them, we're not necessarily applying that everybody that uh, has gone through a divorce, that they're guilty in some tragic way. They're oftentimes the innocent party. But whatever the case, it is said whenever a marriage breaks up. And one of the main reasons for this growing problem, I believe, is that couples have departed from God's blueprint for marriage. And we find that blueprint right here in the very second chapter of the Bible. The original blueprint set before us in these verses that we just read. And we have in these verses an account of the first wedding. And the first thing we encounter in verse 18 is that it is God's observation. He says it's not good that man should be alone. And then this observation is followed by his resolve, his purpose. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And the word translated helper we've saw, seen in the past, it conveys the idea of one who assists another person to reach complete fulfillment. And as his matching opposite, Eve would supply what was lacking in Adam. Well, the account of Adam's need for a counterpart is then followed by an account of God's provision, the provision of a woman, verses 21 to 23. And you know the story how God caused Adam to fall into the deep sleep. He took one of his ribs and he made out of that rib the first woman. And the finishing touch is given in verse 22 where we read that the Lord fashioned the rib into the woman and he brought her to the man. God himself, as it were, the one that walked Eve down the aisle to give her to Adam that day. And Adam's response was an outburst of joyful astonishment. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this account of the creation of the first woman is followed by Moses' inspired commentary in verse 24, which we considered last time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And we saw that marriage involves three elements. It involves leaving. A man shall leave his father and mother. It involves cleaving. He shall be joined to his wife and weaving. They shall become one flesh. Now, after noting these three elements in our last sermon, we drew attention to four practical implications that come out of this portion of the Word of God. We noticed that marriage has been designed by God. This isn't something that men made up, and therefore we can shape it any way that we please as we have more modern, advanced views, supposedly. 
We saw also that marriage is monogamous. One man is married to one woman. Polygamy was never God's original design. We saw thirdly that it is to be heterosexual. In the beginning, God ordained a marriage between Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. And we saw also that marriage is a binding covenant. It is a solemn covenant made in the presence of God and other witnesses. Well, this morning, what I want to do is especially emphasize two more practical implications that come out of this passage of on marriage. And as we look at these, these two implications are, by the way, are right at the top of the sheet where the outline is. And after we go through those two implications, I want to address what is required then for the practical impl- Im- implementation of those two implications. And first of all, you notice at the top of the page that marriage is for loving companionship. This is the natural inference of what we just read at the beginning of verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And to relieve this aloneness that Adam felt and which God saw, Adam was given a partner who perfectly matched his need. Adam was lonely, and God remedied that loneliness by giving him a companion. And he would experience with this companion the exact opposite of that loneliness. He would experience delightful companionship, loving companionship. This is God's intention in marriage. It's an emotional and spiritual union that is the most intimate and endearing of all human relationships upon earth. In other words, God's plan for marriage is that it would be the uh, the closest of all friendships. And this emotional and spiritual bond, it doesn't take place overnight. Your closest friends, you didn't become closest friends in the first five minutes that you met one another. But rather, you see, this emotional bond is a process that begins as two people get to know each other by spending time with one another, conversing with one another, and they begin this process and the courtship, and hopefully they continue it throughout their marriage. And part of this closest of all friendships takes place when a man and a woman go through the same experiences. They go through the same joys together. They go through the same sorrows together. And they bear them together instead of bearing them separately. Many of these experiences are joyful. Certainly this would have been the case with Adam and Eve. There was no sin yet. And so as Gardner Spring writes, amid all the fertility and fruits and beauty of an unsolid paradise and all the charms and splendor of this exterior world, unveiled and unobscured by sin, he was still alone. His maker had so formed him that there were high and holy sympathies in his nature which solitude could not satisfy. The air would be more sweet. Listen to these words. The air would be more sweet. The fruits of Eden more delicious. The melody of its groves and the murmur of its streams the more exquisitely enjoyed if shared with one who with like hallowed affections and sympathies could maintain with him a correspondence in thought and language and emotion, and with him become the grateful and happy partaker of God's gracious gifts. So what he's saying in that big long paragraph 
is that with all the blessings of a perfect world, it still wasn't quite right until Adam would have somebody to enjoy those things together with him. And furthermore, just as shared joys bind hearts together, even after sin entered the world, shared trials and shared sorrows bind hearts together. But there's nothing automatic with this happening. You can go through the same joys together. You can go through the same trials together. It's not automatically that those things in and of themselves will make you close together. Even marriage can be invaded by individualism and isolation, and it results in a mutual loneliness. You're in the same house together, but both of you are lonely. Dwight Hervey Small, he observes that loneliness arises not from isolation in space, but from isolation in spirit. It is not a geographical problem, but a social problem. It concerns man's relatedness to others beside himself. As love is outgoing, loneliness is ingrowing. The loneliness that Mr. Small describes, it takes place, you see, when two people go through the same joys and the same sorrows in life, but they do this in an isolated way. A couple you see can maybe even lose a child, their dearest child. But if they go to the opposite ends of the house and grieve separately, their loneliness only increases. And the bond that could be a source, you see, of relief, it doesn't doesn't occur. And it's only when they truly share in that experience by way of an exchange of their thoughts and their feelings, their union will be deepened by that sorrow. And in the depths of their grief, at first the bond may be deepened without a word, maybe, as they just embrace one another and their tears flow on each other's shoulders. But the communication of thoughts and feelings eventually needs to be expressed in words, in conversations. And it's by God's words to us, you see, and by our words to God, it's by communication we get close to God. And it's by communication that marriage uh, grows and deepens. So the first practical implication of this passage is that marriage is for loving companionship. The second practical implication from this passage that I want to consider this morning, and it's related, God's design for marriage is that the two would become one. In Genesis 2.24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now it is true that the marriage act is a symbol of, and culmination of this oneness. But this one flesh union, it doesn't consist just in the marriage act. The essence of this union is the total giving of each person to the other. And without this spiritual and emotional exchange, the physical loses all of its meaning. And so I like Wayne Mack's definition of marriage. Marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person with another person until death. So here we have two related implications that grow out of this chapter. Marriage is for loving companionship, and God's design for marriage is that two would become one. And here's what I want you to see in the rest of our sermon this morning. Both of these 
principles, these realities, depend upon communication. And the one flesh unity that God has in mind, it depends upon good communication. And wherever you, therefore, wherever you find a couple enjoying this one flesh relationship that God has intended, you will find people that, have, that communicate effectively with one another. The one flesh principle, it's not just a physical union. It implies spiritual and emotional closeness, harmony, and intimacy. And this can only develop in the context of healthy communication. Now, on one hand, a married couple's enjoyment of genuine oneness is determined by the health of their communication. And on the other hand, wherever you find marital failure, Almost always, and I'd say probably every single time, in some way or another, there has been a breakdown in communication. Now, in general terms, effective communication can be defined as the process of sharing information with another person in such a way that the sender's message is understood as he or she intended it. So that's communication. You say something... And what you intended by what you said is correctly received by the person who hears what you have just said. On May 24th of 1844, Samuel Morse sent the very first telegraphic message over an experimental line from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore. Interestingly, taken from Numbers chapter 23 and verse 23, that very first Telegraph message said this, What hath God wrought? Question mark. Credit was given to God for this amazing invention. And the message was sent by way of what came to be called by its inventor the Morse code, which consists of dots and dashes, and they're arranged in different ways to imply different letters of the alphabet. But this was a cumbersome way of a long-distance communication. But it was the beginning of a communication revolution. But long-distance communication can be very faulty. The first radios often produced a crackling sound that made it difficult to understand what was being said. And even now, if you have a cell phone with an inferior network, and you tried to get a bargain deal, and, it, and many times you wish you hadn't tried for the bargain, and you get in certain areas and you can't really, you're, you're out of zone already, and you can't have good communication with the person with whom you want to speak. And in a similar way, marriage communication can break down to such an extent that what is in the mind of the speaker is either not understood or it is not received in a manner that benefits both of them. And it's received instead in a way that kills rather than nurtures a close marital relationship. Now, some of you may wonder how the communication that you and your spouse had when you were first married, when you were first courting one another, how it just seems like what you had back then is lost. Communication during courtship is it's largely exploration. It's largely discovery. That's what makes it so exciting. It involves the excitement of penetrating the mystery of that other person, wanting to find out what's inside. And as your marriage lengthens from months to years, what happens? The deadening routine of seeing each other and going through the same things day after day, all the same circumstances, it begins to set in. 
And you soon could predict what your, what your spouse is about to say when, you, when a, a sentence has begun. And the adventure you see is gone. The discovery is gone. The exciting mystery has ceased. And so your talk, it descends into merely a saying what would be said and just to make it things efficient and for things to be done. Uh, did, you, did you send out the, the bill, the, the payment for such and such a check or such and such a bill? You have that level of communication. And you quit talking about what's on your heart. You quit talking about what really matters the most. And you become just like roommates, you see, living in the same house, passing one another a couple times a day as they retreat to their own rooms. And because you cease talking on a deeper level, more and more you begin to misunderstand one another. And what we might call circuit jammers in communication cause your communication to break down. And in the rest of this sermon, what I want to do is begin to take up one of those circuit jammers. We've got several in the outlines there. We're only going to consider the first of these this morning. And what we want to do is look at just this first one, as I said. And I hope that as we go through these circuit jammers, that this will not only be a profit to people that are married, but also to those that are not married here. Because you too have friendships and relationships, whether it's in your extended family, or whether it's in the church, or whether it's at work. And whatever your situation, let's roll up our sleeves and let's tackle some of these circuit jammers of communication. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul says that we are to speak what is good for necessary edification that it might impart grace to the hearers. Well, we've listed four circuit jammers in the outline. Undertalk, false talk, unloving talk, and one-way talk. And I'm especially indebted to Wayne Mack in his book, Your Family, God's Way, for so many of the thoughts that I want to pass on to you this morning. And what we're going to look at is simply this one. It is the tendency for undertalk or we might call small talk. Now, oftentimes, when we talk about small talk, it's kind of like, it's just about little things. Oh, I, I looked, uh, we're supposed to get snow tomorrow. Did you, you know, did you find out how many inches we're supposed to get? That's small talk, as you talk with somebody. But what I'm talking about is small talk in terms of very little of that talk taking place. There's little communication at all that is taking place in the relationship. And marriage counselors, they frequently hear complaints like this. Whenever my husband and I get into a discussion that would really help me to get to know him better, he just clams up and refuses to talk. He keeps everything bottled up inside. Or, my wife, she seldom initiates a conversation. And if I didn't get the ball rolling, it would be like a morgue around here. Or my husband, he's got a one-word vocabulary. Well, actually, he's got two. One is, uh-huh, and the other is, uh-huh. Or, you've heard of old stone face. Well, I married it. Getting my husband to talk is like pulling teeth. If I ask him a question, he just grunts a one-word answer. If I ask him how his steak is, he says, good. If I ask him how it's going, he says, fine. If I ask him what he's thinking about, he's nothing really, or I don't know. Well, Robert Barnes, he calls these kind of responses, grunt-level communication. Very little talk takes place. It's barely more than a grunt. Teenagers have perfected this to a, to a perfect art. How's school today, son? Okay. Well, what did you do? Nothing. 
That's all you get. Well, men used to get such responses at the office. We're used to hearing these things all the time. We pass one another in the hallway or we pass each other's desks and, and somebody says, well, how you doing? Well, fine. And when, what if somebody really responded, what's in their heart? How are you doing? Well, I'm really feeling like commit suicide today. That's really what I feel like today. You expect that to come out. No, you, the person hides that. Because even no matter how depressed he is, he doesn't want to say it. He just uses the superficial expected response. And that kind of superficiality, it, it carries over into the home. Well, in such a world, it's no wonder that a distressed wife will bemoan the fact that in her home, everybody can go for days without speaking a word. Parents grieve over children that never initiate conversations. And if they're asked a question, it seems like it's torture for them to mumble a barely audible response. And with certain individuals, it's not that they're incommunicative due to dislike for the person that's trying to engage them in conversation. That's not necessarily the case. But what really hurts a wife whose husband talks to her, and hardly ever talks to her, I should say, is when she sees him get all excited about a ball game with one of his buddies. Or she sees him talking with great excitement and enthusiasm about some kind of a project he's working on at work. But to talk to her, he, he, he can't have, he's not interested, it seems. And it hurts, you see, when she sees that contrast. Well, such undertalk, it manifests itself in various ways. And of your notes, I've listed three very common examples of undertalk or small talk. The first expression of it is apathy. And the message that is often conveyed by this kind of small talk is, I don't really care what you think or what you feel. I just want to be left alone. Just don't bother me with asking me all kinds of questions. I want to watch this show. Or I want to read this article. With such a message, it can be conveyed indirectly by a blank expression or by an inattention or by just lack of enthusiasm in your voice. And it's hard for the spouse of such an incommunicative person to conclude anything other than that he or she, that is this, this, the, the one that's not talkative, just doesn't really care about what the other person is saying or thinking. And this undertalk is simply a manifestation you see of self-centeredness that couldn't care less about the thoughts and the feelings of the other one. The Bible tells us that pleasant words are sweet to the soul. It also tells us in the book of Proverbs that sharing good news is like cold water to a weary soul. But you see the self-centered man who seldom rises above a grunt level in his communication. His conversation with his wife especially, he sends this message loud and clear. I don't really care how you feel. I just want to be left alone. It really is. It crucifies a marriage. She longs to hear even the simplest expression of I love you or some other way that he's interested in her. But he doesn't, she doesn't get it. And when the counselor asks him why he never tells her he loves her, asks him, well, don't you love her? He says, well, sure I love her, but I just don't talk about it. I show her in other ways. 
Well, she hasn't figured it out in other ways. She doesn't know that he loves her anymore. And how is this then a reflection of a loving God who always is telling us how much he loves us? We're to be like God. We're to tell those that are dear to us that we love them and not show this apathy or disinterestedness toward that person that is supposed to be the best friend in our life. And the second manifestation of this kind of small talk or, 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 or untalk is opaqueness. Now, something that's opaque, it doesn't let the light shine through. A lampshade, most of them anyway, they let light shine into the rest of the room. There are some that are deliberately opaque and just shine right down on your desk. But something that's opaque, it doesn't let the light shine through. A sentence is opaque if its meaning doesn't come through. A person or what he says is opaque if it's next to impossible to figure out what that person is thinking or what his attitude is toward the other person. Now in marriage, as in other relationships, one of the ways in which this kind of opaqueness is manifested is clamming up. And oftentimes this clamming up takes place when you're angry. Or some people, when they get angry, they start blasting away, guns blazing. They're, they're, they're hair trigger with their temper. But there are other people that conceal their anger and they just clam up. And Paul addresses both of these kinds of responses. He says in Ephesians 4.26, he warns people against letting the sun go down on their wrath. You've got some kind of offensive thing that takes place and instead of taking care of it before you go to sleep tonight with your partner, you just let it go on. Just let it fester and you never deal with it. And it's, it's terrible. The, the, the results is never good. And some people, they hold resentment inside their hearts for years for something that was said or done years before. A husband maybe forgot his wife's birthday 33 years ago, and she holds it against him still. And she's never told him about it all those years. That's still eating away at her. Or in his insensitivity, he says something about her weight. Or he tells her, well, maybe, honey, you need to go join a gym. He maybe doesn't say it so bluntly, well, you're getting a little bit heavy. You need to go to a gym. And so, he, and so she holds it in for years that he said this to her. Never clearing the air. Wayne Mackey writes of a woman that prided herself in the fact that she had never yelled at her husband. In fact, she said, she'd never verbally disagreed with him. But instead, you see, when conflict arose, she would just clam up and be silent. That was her way of responding to it. And then when her husband became increasingly cool toward her, with less and less to say, she couldn't understand it. She had always been a submissive wife, she thought. But what she failed to realize is that her husband didn't want a silent wife. He wanted a loving, open wife, a companion with whom he could carry on conversations. One that their relationship would deepen through those conversations. And there's an opaqueness, you see, that hinders their marriage, therefore, Sometimes opaqueness, it manifests itself more generally. It manifests itself by never sharing your thoughts or feelings. It's not that you've gotten angry and you keep it tight, but you just don't share any feelings. Wives, they frequently say something like this. I don't know my husband. He doesn't share his thoughts. 
He doesn't express his desires or his goals or his concerns. I have often no idea about how he feels about something. He keeps his feelings to himself. He keeps me at a distance. He never allows me to find out what's going on inside of him. The Apostle Paul dealt with this in the Corinthians. The Corinthians were gossiping about Paul behind his back, saying, well, he's not as, he's not as oratorical as Apollos. We, we like his speaking abilities, and Paul, he's kind of just, kind of just straight, and he, he, he's, he's not interesting to listen to. So they had all these kinds of complaints about Paul, and they gossiped about him. So he wrote them in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 and following. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open, he says to them. You see, his heart is wide open to them. And he asks for their hearts to be open to him. And the same kind of open-heartedness that should be present, you see, between a man and his wife. And it ought to be present in parent-child relationships. It ought to be present in the church. So there is opaqueness that fosters this untalkness or this small talk in marriage and in other relationships. But there's one more thing that I want to comment on. It is that of unresponsiveness. One of the ways that this manifests itself is in a failure to acknowledge the good ideas or the good endeavors of other people. Jeff has what he thinks is a great idea about how to promote their family business and how to get more people to know about their store and to to do business there. And he's eager to put his idea into practice in the family business, at least to try it out. And so he's hoping to hear from his dad when he shares this idea with his dad. Hey, Jeff, that's a terrific idea. Or at least, that's an interesting idea. Tell me more about how how this would work. Or what about this aspect? And get into a conversation about it. That's what he hopes will take place. Instead, he gets, hmm, that's it. Hmm. And then his dad, he goes back on the article he's looking at at the internet, and it's as if that's all, that's the extent to which the whole conversation is going to go. No response, basically. Well, unresponsiveness is manifested in, in that kind of a way. It's also manifested by the husband that says nothing when his wife has gone to great lengths, for instance, to fix a special meal. He eats the meal with great relish, but there's not the slightest expression of recognition or appreciation, and it's just, this is with every meal. But you think especially with something that she went to extra efforts about. Maybe she even put some candles on the table and some garnishes by the dish and so forth. And his unresponsiveness to what she's done for him, it conveys the impression that, well, she's just a slave. She's supposed to do this anyway, and I shouldn't be puffing her up by complimenting her on it. And she shouldn't expect any kind of recognition for doing this. That's the impression it conveys. It hurts. Paul's letters, they're filled with expressions of thanksgiving. He sees things in the saints. And he doesn't just ignore it. He he gives thanks to God for them. 
He, he doesn't say, well, you know, I don't want to make them proud, so I better not tell them where they're doing good, because they might begin to think that they're, 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 they're hot shots. No, that's not his attitude. Notice how he speaks to the Philippians. Maybe you could turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, for instance. He's full of thanksgiving and praise as he writes his dear Philippian brothers and sisters. Philippians chapter 1, he says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You see this? It isn't just that he thanks God. He tells them that he thanks God for them. Always in every prayer of mine making requests for you with all joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And he does this throughout the whole book. But let's flip over to chapter 4. In chapter 4, they've sent him a gift. And others had not supported Paul. He had to make money on the side to be able to carry out his ministry. But he says in verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. In other words, he says... The fact that you didn't give to me at a certain point, was, it wasn't, it was, you didn't have the opportunity to do it. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And then after speaking of how God has taught him this contentment, even though he receives sometimes, he doesn't receive, and he's thankful that they have given to him, he says in verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well, and that you shared in my distress. Now, you Philippians, know also that at the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. And then he says in verse 18, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You see, this wasn't just a little company hallmark-made thank you note. There was a few words. This is an extensive expression of thanksgiving for what these people had done for him. He even calls these people his joy and his crown in verse 1 of chapter 4. God delights to commend our efforts to serve him in the same way. When David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, you remember, even though it was God's plan that it would be David's son, Solomon, a man of peace instead of a man of war like David, God wanted Solomon and not David. But David had expressed his desire to Nathan that he would build a temple. But God didn't say, well, David, you're, you're just, you just, you're just don't you know your place? You don't know to wait for the next guy to do it? When I... No, he didn't give him that kind of a response. What was his response? He didn't, give, he didn't give him the silent treatment either. The Lord told David why it was his plan for Solomon to build the temple. But he also added this to David. Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. God could see what was in his heart. And even though it wasn't going to be David that would do the great grand project, God commended him. He approved and expressed his gratitude for what he saw. And like God, you see, a husband and a father should commend even good intentions in the hearts of his wife and children. But again and again, Paul urges believers to encourage one another, to esteem one another, 
to appreciate one another. And we won't have time to turn to all those texts, but virtually every of his, almost all of his letters in the New Testament are like that. And husbands and wives, they should seek to encourage one another. Wives should seek to encourage their husbands as they persevere in the face of great difficulties in their calling. And husbands should encourage their wives in what their wives do. They seek to make the home a cozy, warm, inviting place. They seek to instruct the children. And maybe you're homeschooling children, and it takes great sacrifice to do that. And in general, the way they perform so many things for the family, and in spite of the fact that what they do today has to be done all over again tomorrow, and then the next day it has to be done all over again again, and when we remember to respond from time to time to that person and commend that person, whether it's the husband or the wife, our homes then begin to be a place of an oasis in, in, in an ungrateful world, an oasis of gratitude, an oasis of joy. And so instead of having this unresponsiveness, we need to learn to respond to one another as various things are said and as various things are done. Well, these are three examples of undertalk. Apathy, opaqueness, and unresponsiveness. Well, there are several other reasons, or I should say there are several reasons why some of us especially struggle with undertalk. And I want to just mention a few of these things. And I'll be real brief here because I didn't put these in your notes. But sometimes the kind of small talk that we're talking about is rooted and this is one of the reasons. It's rooted in a sense of inferiority. There are several reasons why some of us struggle with undertalk. Sometimes this is one of them, inferiority. Some of you may struggle with feeling that, well, you don't really have anything worthwhile to say. You go to the church picnic and everybody else is talking there at the table and, and it just seems like uh, you, don't know, you can't quote the Bible verses the way maybe somebody else is or... Or you haven't read the theology books that the other person is. And so you feel like, well, I don't have anything to contribute to this, to this discussion. You feel inferior. And you're afraid that if you open your mouth, you're going to say something that's looked upon as being foolish. With others of you, though, it's that you actually shut up your mouth because of fear. You're afraid to speak up because you don't want to run the risk of having your ideas rejected or have somebody disagree with you. And if this is so, remember that the fear of the Lord, or the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord, he shall be safe, Proverbs 29 tells us. So don't be governed by fear to keep you from expressing your, your thoughts with your wife or your family or other church members or friends. Sometimes past training contributes to clamming up. Maybe you grew up in a strict home in which there was this idea that children are to be seen, not heard. And so you've been, it's been drummed into your head that you're just silence pleases mom and dad. That's the way you grew up, and so it's hard to be different, having grown up in that kind of an environment. Maybe some of you grew up in that. Or maybe it's just busyness, the busyness of life that keeps you overly quiet in the home. And you say to yourself, if only I didn't have so much to do. If only I didn't have to do this and this and this. And you list them all off in your head. And you go through every day of the week, and they're just crammed full of all the things you think you need to get done on each one of these days. If all that wasn't there, I'd have lots of time to talk with my wife. And so you excuse your lack of communication with your spouse with the argument that it takes a lot of time to get a business off the ground. It takes a lot of time to do all the stuff on the house. You've got to do taxes now because 
April 15th, now it's April 18th, thankfully this year, is coming right up. You have all these things that are on your mind. And you say, well, if I get past some of this, then maybe I'll have time to talk. With all I've got to do at work, all the things I've got to do in the house, all the things I've got to do for the church, when am I supposed to have time to talk to my wife? But when you argue that way, you forget that someday you're going to give an account for how you either cared for or how you neglected your wife and your children. And so, my dear friend, you must never forget that you have never dying souls entrusted to your care. You need to talk with them. You need to interact with them. And when you excuse the fact that you're with the excuse that you're too busy, you're saying that getting ahead at work, fixing up the house, this is way more important than your wife. That's what you're saying, loud and clear. And we make time for what we value most in our lives. And here, let me practice what I preach. Our time is running out. So I want to conclude by taking the remaining few minutes that we have by giving you some practical pointers as to how some of you that maybe are quiet by nature can overcome this and communicate better with your husband or with your wife or, for that matter, with others in the church. And the first thing is that, by way of practical pointers, that overcoming this kind of small talk, I've been preaching about it, begins with determining that you're going to overcome this tendency. You've got to decide you're going to do something about it. I realize that I'm preaching more to some people in this regard than to others. There are some people that their sin is not talking too little, but talking too much. In the book of Proverbs, there's a lot to say about that one, too. But I'm not talking, you see, about that issue. I'm speaking primarily to those who tend to keep your heart to yourself. You wall yourself off from your wife or your husband. Remember how Paul opened his heart to the Corinthians, even to people that would take things that he said and use them and twist them and use them against him. He still opened his heart to them. Remember how Jesus opened up to his disciples. You can't read the upper room discourse in John chapters 14 and following without seeing that this is a man that opens his heart to his disciples. You get to know his inmost thoughts by what he says. And remember this, and determine that you're going to be like Jesus in this regard. You're going to open up a little bit more. You're going to be like Paul and open up with your wife or open up with your children or your parents. And growth in this, it won't, it won't come by accident. It takes place when you're willing to, to work at it. There are people that tend to be quiet, but they have to determine to overcome this. Jesus said to the paralyzed man in John 5, Do you want me to, to be made well? And that's an interesting question. It seemed like this guy, he just made up the excuse, well, I, I can't get down to the water to get, to get well. They all, somebody always beats me to it. And he got, you see, so discouraged as if he wasn't going to try anymore. So Jesus says, you, do you really want to get well? Well, that's the way he started talking to him. We've got to decide to do something about it. And sometimes some of us, were, we're just that way, that it takes more work than for another person. It was that way with my father, for instance. He was a very timid man. But you never would have known it later on in his, in his ministry. I remember him telling a story about uh, walking on a country road, and he grew up on a farm in Iowa. Somebody saw him walking along the road, and he stopped and asked my, my father, do you need a ride? And so my dad said, well, I don't care. 
You see, he was too, too, too shy to ever say yes, that would really help. And so the guy says, well, I don't care either. So he started driving off. And thankfully he stopped. He had made his point, and he let my father in. He took him, took him along. Well, it's an example of how sometimes we're put together that way. We've got to overcome it. And so you've got to determine to do something about it. And then secondly, you need to make your tendency to undertalk a regular matter of prayer. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. There could be temptation about this as well as other things. And so taking passages of scripture that maybe we use this morning or others that you read in your devotions, cry out to God for his help. Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17 and 18, take the word and take prayer and take it to the Lord. You feel powerless, you see, in in overcoming this weakness. But take this promise to the Lord that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And he will work in it, work in you to accomplish his purpose. So make it a matter of prayer. And then prime your conversational pump. Sometimes we don't talk because we feel like we don't have anything to talk about. I have a a brother-in-law that that always he grew up on a farm, and as an adult, he always had a job uh, in, in an implement place. So either it'd be selling tractors or overseeing the parts department. And whenever I go back to Iowa and we go to their house, the only way we're going to have conversations is if, if we talk about tractors. So I figure, okay, I'm going to talk about tractors, or or maybe farming about the the, the weather that's happening and the price of wheat, maybe or the the price of hogs. It, it, if I'm going to have a conversation, I've got to talk about that. Because he doesn't have any other interest rather than that. And we need to avoid being like this. We need to have broader interests, you see, to converse with one another. And, of course, there's a rich deposit in the Bible. Read the Bible. Read good books. Read magazines. Read other sound literature. And I would recommend World Magazine to get you acquainted with what's going on in the world from a Christian standpoint. And if you have difficult time reading, and some of us are not put together that we read well, there are wonderful things that are available on cable television, history channels, and, and uh, National Geographic. I'm not saying everything on these channels is great, but you can find good and profitable things that will enlarge your understanding of the world that God has put you in. And if you want to use the Internet instead, use that time wisely. Choose not just the drivel that's out there, but choose something that's going to edify, something that's going to expand your knowledge. And I'm not, shade, I'm not saying you've got to read Aristotle. You've got to read, you see, heavy things. But there's a lot of things out there that you can, you can become more acquainted with, and this will enrich you in having conversations with other people. And then, finally, especially this applies to marriage, set aside time for conversation with your spouse and with others that you love. Have a date night. Have a date breakfast, perhaps. You can be alone then and focus on your relationship. Find those times during the day in which the children have perhaps been put to bed or some other time in which you're least distracted by other things and other people in the home. And if you have to travel, call your wife. Do it, do it every day or, or at least every other day. And as you spend time with your spouse in these and other ways, 
Seek to block out also time with your children. Communicate with them. And so set aside time to communicate with those that you love. Now I want to just close by just saying that we have a Savior that is not like what I have described in terms of untalk or small talk. He is just the opposite. And if you're here without the Lord Jesus, I want to commend to you the best communicator in the universe. Jesus doesn't respond to you with apathy. I don't care if I save you or not. That's not his attitude. If you come to him and you want to be saved, Jesus doesn't respond to you with opaqueness, covering his own heart so you have no idea what he's thinking or saying. He doesn't respond with unresponsiveness. He's eager to save you. He's eager to have a relationship with you. And I would urge you to open up the Bible and find Jesus in the Bible, to find him in prayer, seek him in the word and seek him by prayer and communicate with him. Begin that communication by saying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Would you please be my savior and save me from my sins? Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you for the way in which you are the perfect father communicating with children. Your son, Lord, our, our savior, is the perfect shepherd of our souls, a friend of, he's the friend of friends. And we thank you for the perfect example that you set, that your son sets, that we might imitate you in our homes, in the church, in the places where you put us. Help us, O oh Lord, to be delivered especially some of us that tend to be more introverted. Deliver us from apathy, from opaqueness, and from unresponsiveness. Enable us, O Lord, to get out of ourselves and to open up our hearts to one another and and our marriages. May our communications deepen and grow. And may it be not only between husbands and wives in this place, but also parents and their children, between us as members of the church. We pray, O Lord, that you would teach us how to be like you. And, O oh Lord God, draw into your, into your bosom those that are far from you even this very day. Open up their hearts to you even as your heart is open to them. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.